Luke chapter 5 this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come upon us today as we look into your word. Fill our hearts and our minds with it, Lord, that uh, we would see clearly what it means to live the things of Christ, the dangers that await us, but also the strength that is available to us, that we might faithfully live out what you have provided for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll read Luke in, in just a moment. Do you remember... When you walked out of an exam, high school or college maybe, and you think, you thought to yourself, jeez, oh, I just really tanked that. Uh, I mean, I just, uh, I, the, the exam was way too hard, and, and, and it was way beyond me, and I just couldn't do it, and, and I tanked it, and you thought maybe life was over. And then you went to have lunch, and, and you're sitting there with your friends who were in the same exam, and they start to commiserate with you about how they thought the exam was really hard and they didn't do well on it either and maybe they tanked it and all of a sudden this glimmer of hope sparks in your brain. Maybe, just maybe, the teacher will do what? Curve it. Oh man. Now sometimes we, we just love that word, curve. Uh, we think um, that, that there's real hope for us and, and that, that maybe if everybody did poorly, then my grade will look a little bit better because she'll curve it. Well, you walk into class three days later expecting to hear those magic words from the teacher or the professor. You know what? I thought that, that exam was just maybe a little bit over the top. Everybody did poorly, so I'm going to grade it on the curve. But instead you hear, I want to congratulate Randy and Judy for getting hundreds, the only two hundreds on the exam. <laughs> and you look at them. With, you, you give them the stink eye, and you think, how could you do that to us? You curve breakers, okay? Because you know what? They, did, they made everybody else look bad. Right. Now, if you, there's hope. When, you, when, you, when the curve comes, you've got a 30, and if they curve it, maybe that 30 turns into a, a C or a B, maybe, if it's really bad. And you think, but if somebody got a 100, you just, you just can't curve it because... There is perfection there, and you have to live up to it. Now, nobody likes a curve breaker. I, I, I'm, is anybody, any teachers who grave on the curve at all? There it is, okay? <laughs> I, I remember, well, you know what the curve is. The curve is a bell-shaped curve, and, and all that I can remember is that I think 7% are supposed to fail, and 7% are supposed to get A's, and everybody else is distributed on a normal bell curve out through the center with most of the people being simply average and get a C, okay? And, you know, average is, what's a C in most, 70 to 80, isn't that somewhere in there? Unless your school's really hard, and then C's are like 80 to 85 or something like that. I, I don't know. Most of the time, the curve boosts everybody's grade. Okay? Most of the time. 
most of the time. Uh, but, you know, when, when, when those two people get their hundreds and we give them the stink eye and we look badly upon them, that's a terrible reflection upon us because what we really should be doing is celebrating the fact of their excellence. Now, how many of us have done that, celebrated the fact that somebody broke the curve on us? <laughs> I, I don't remember that. <laughs> I, I remember distinctly in high school chemistry, which... I'm theology, I'm not chemistry, okay? We had a substitute teacher, and this, this, the homework was this, this one particular formula, and the substitute teacher started writing it on the board and just couldn't get it, and one of the students went up to the board and did the formula on the board, and we booed him. Okay, <laughs> We should have exalted him because he was trying to lift us up to his level, and what we were doing is saying, you're making us look bad. He didn't make us look bad. We were bad, okay, <laughs> because we couldn't figure it out. We should have, and how many times in our lives do we look at excellence and we, instead of exalting it, we demean it. Instead of wanting to be like those people, we go, man, those people, they're just, they're just full of themselves, right? They, they just think they've got it all going on. Instead of saying, well, I really want to be like them. I really want to be like them. More often or not, the usual tendency is to belittle or fear or even attack those who make us look bad. Now, we already look bad. They're just looking good. They're looking like we would like to look, but we just don't want to put the effort into achieving that level. They reveal the failings of our own lives. There is a Dutch phrase when there is an awkward silence in a conversation. And it's, it's an idiomatic statement that says, a minister just walked by. Now, uh, maybe you haven't experienced this if you're not a minister, uh, but that's a conversation killer often, okay? Because, you know, ministers are no fun, okay? We have no sense of humor. We've never heard a bad word in our lives, okay? And, and I can remember being on the golf course so many times, and... and they would, you know, we'd, you'd get paired up with, with two people, and, and about the fourth or fifth hole you'd get to, what do you do for a living? And you'd say, well, I'm, I'm a pastor at such and such church. And they go, well, I'm sorry. I, I, was, I shouldn't have said those things. You know? <laughs> it's like, oh, man. A minister walked by. It's, it's, a, it's an attempt to offer an explanation for a sudden silence in the conversation. Okay? Now, in, in many uh, circumstances, I have friends who in the EPC, who are planting churches up in the Northwest, okay, in Washington and Oregon in particular. And they say there is no faster way to kill a conversation in those two states and in their experience than to let somebody know you're planting a church. Okay? Now, I, I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, the one guy said, let me give you an example. Here I am, I'm at a restaurant, uh, and I'm talking to somebody, and we're having this conversation. It's going along great, and, you know, we're talking about just everything. And, and after about t- 10 minutes or so of standing there talking, the guy says, well, what, what do you do for a living? And he says, well, I'm, a, I'm out here planning a church for the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And the guy he'd been talking to for 10 minutes went, oh, <laughs> and just walked away. Didn't say anything else. It wasn't really the end of the conversation as you would expect. He just went, oh, and walked away. He said, it's just death to say that you're out there planning a church. 
Nobody seems to want to hear it. Maybe they don't like churches. Maybe they don't like, maybe they're intimidated by the thought of the things of Christ coming into their world because they don't like the holy. They don't like the holy. Now, historically, most cultures have had what we call holy men or holy women, however you want to say it. In the Hinduism, they have the uh, sadhu. It's a, a, an aesthetic person, a aesthetic person, somebody who goes off and lives a very barren life, devoting themselves to attempting to purify themselves of all bad thoughts and of all bad, um, uh, bad things uh, to achieve liberation. And they go off and they do it themselves. And they contemplate on the uh, uh, Brahman of whatever that is. I, I, you know, it's not right, so I don't pay attention to it. They wear saffron-colored clothes. They wear dreadlocks. They let their hair grow incredibly long. Um, and they come in various shapes and sizes, uh, men and women. Uh, sometimes they, they live in temples or live in the forest. Oftentimes uh, they have no possessions, so after a while they have no clothing. They just go out and, and they want to divest themselves of all worldly things and thoughts in an order to achieve Holiness. In Islam, they have imams, which are more of a title for a teacher, uh, not so much of a holy man. But in certain parts of Africa, in, in uh, Islam, they have what they call holy men, but they're more magicians or Quranic experts. Uh, Islam has holy places, uh, Mecca and, and Medina, as an example. Uh, some societies call their holy men by various names. We have witch doctors, which in, in some places would be considered the holy men. Sinjin, Harjivan, Jean, or uh, even things like Rasputins, which would be a category named after the mystic, the Russian mystic Rasputin. In Christianity, historically we've had some holy men, and, and, and really they come out in, through the, the early church fathers and the desert fathers, these, these people who decided to move away from society and get out in a chance to, in an effort to really focus their attention upon the Lord and not be corrupt by society as a whole anymore. Because they felt society was unholy, and in order to be holy, I had to get away from it. So they went out to the desert, and they were called the desert fathers often. And they would go out, and they would deny themselves, and uh, they, all kinds of places from from, there were some who would go live in caves. There were some who would be sealed up in caves and only fed every now and then and uh, go off and live by themselves, deny themselves uh, as, as much as possible until they began to see visions, until they began to have dreams of the Lord. And then after a while, word would, would trickulate back into society that, that so-and-so was out having some visions. Let's go out and spend time with him and hear from the Lord. And groups would begin to form around these men, and that's really how kind of the monastic movement got some of its start, and, and they were considered holy. Now, I like it in the Reformed um, faith that we don't have any holy men. We have something called the priesthood of all believers. Now, we know, every of us, one of us knows, because we can grade on the curve, there are better Christians than us, Right? Okay, they're the Christians who are scoring 98 and 99, um, and, and, and in our hearts, at least on the surface, we love them and we adore them. Uh, if, if we really said sometimes they threaten us because they reveal our unholiness, okay, they reveal our unholiness. 
but really our, we have one holy man, and that's Jesus, and that's whom we build ourselves around as a, as a faith and as, as our very lives. Now, for many non-believers, I think there is an uncomfortable feeling, an uncomfortable reality when they are in the presence of the holy, either real or perceived holiness. Some places, some people, some events are so associated with the holiness of Christ that their presence is enough to make the non-believer very, very uncomfortable. Luke chapter 5. What are you doing? Verses 1 through 8. Now it came about that while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. He sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. See, it was, it was here, in a sense, that his eyes were open to the holiness. And what is his response? It is much like that of Isaiah that we read earlier. I, I can't be in your presence. You are holy, and I am not. I mean, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Remember, there, there's no punctuation in the Hebrew. It's, it's re- repetition that sig- signifies importance. So when holiness is repeated three times in Isaiah 6, that's very serious. Peter says, I I can't be in your presence, Lord. I can't. Peter felt what can only be described as the trauma of the presence of holiness. The trauma of the presence of holiness. Holiness of Christ was like a physical force to Peter. Remember, in the glory, in the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord, that word is also used for weightiness. So it's almost like a tangible, physical presence that one could feel and often I think this type of holiness provokes hatred from those who realize what it is or more importantly when we realize our own ungodliness because when we're on the curve my ungodliness is not so bad but when somebody shows up and comes in perfect my ungodliness and unholiness is revealed The greater the holiness, the greater often the human hostility toward it. And as we try to understand this, I want to look at at two things uh, rather quickly, not not in-depth, just to review. You probably remember these. One is called total depravity, and the other is called common grace. Total depravity means that every part of me is touched by sin. Every part of me is touched by sin. Therefore, holiness is naturally foreign to me. It is not innate to me. I do not pursue it. Uh, Holiness, righteousness, and goodness do not make up part of Randy's natural state. Those things are given to me in some portion 
through what is generally called, and it's not in scripture, it's just a theological term, generally called common grace. Okay, common grace is not saving grace. Saving grace is only given to the elect. That's when you are changed forever. You're justified. But common grace is in some measure given to every person. It keeps us from being as bad as our natures would, would direct us to be. So because of God extending his common grace, everyone has some knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. Remember Romans chapter 1. Okay, what was right and wrong was clearly seen, but they turned their back on it. And it may vary from person to person. We think of some people, and we think, boy, they, they really have a tender conscience. Okay? And they really are in tune with what is right and what is wrong. And then other people just seem like they're stone cold, and their hearts are hard, and, and their, their conscience is not developed. Okay? Well, they do have some sense of right and wrong, but in them it's just not It's just not as extensive as in others that we see. So everyone has some knowledge of right and wrong. Therefore, we're often repulsed at at the lives of those whose whose lives are better than ours, who are holier than we are, because we see how far short we fall, especially when we see the perfect example of Christ. Now, what evidence do we have to substantiate this? Turn over to John chapter 3. You probably know this passage, but it's nice to read it as well as have it stuck in our hearts. There was no man who was more loving, more gentle, more kind, more righteous, more of a lover of peace, a demonstrator of justice. The, 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 the words go on and on than Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Here is the son of God. Let's tie this to Philippians chapter 2. There he is at the right hand of the father. Does not equate equality with God as something to be grasped but was obedient to the father left the right hand came into this world took on the form of a man gave his life for us what did he ask for us he gave his life for us his love was perfect his love was holy yet what did they do he comes with this message of love and care and they kill him for it it evoked hatred someone comes to you unasked and demonstrates an unconditional love to you. Okay? He doesn't, he doesn't ask, I'm going to love you in this way if you'll do this. No, he says, I'm going to love you in this way, and what do you do? They killed him. This is what, this is what they did. He said, I'm going to demonstrate this love. I'm going to speak this love. I'm going to show this love. We're going to kill you. I'm going to hate you, and I'm going to kill you. The world seems willing to tolerate holiness at a distance. Just think about that for a moment. It's okay for you to be holy over there. Just don't come into my bubble with it. Okay? You go over there and and, and on Sunday morning live your holy life or maybe in your own home. uh, But be careful when you come out into the world. Because if you want to demonstrate holiness out in the world, you're going to hit some resistance. 
Christ and his holiness is safe as long as it's at least an arm's length from non-believers. At least if it's away from us. But if you come out with holiness, you're going to meet hatred. You're going to meet resistance. I mean, in some cultures, you can't even demonstrate or teach holiness to your children. Because that's against the law. Remember what Caiaphas said when it came time to judge Jesus. He said, for the good of the nation, Jesus must die. For the good of the nation. For the good of the nation, the most loving, the kindest, the gentlest, the one who brings peace, the one who offers peace, the one who is peace himself, he has to die for the good of the nation. Jesus was moving holiness out into the world, and the world just couldn't stand it because they liked the curve, because they liked their own holiness. They didn't like the perfect example of holiness. The Pharisees had their own understanding of what was holy, and there just wasn't room for anybody else or any other type of food. Now, we have to look at the flip side of this as well. Because as as I began to think about this, there's one thing to say, well, the world doesn't like us, right? Because we're the holy group and they don't like us. But how much will the church tolerate unholiness? It's okay for you to live your life unholy over there. Do your own thing. Just don't bother me here in my little Christian bubble. I'm good here. If you want to live that way in your private life, that's your business. You go right ahead. Just don't expect me to live that way. Don't expect me to condone your actions. Uh, don't let, you know, we're not going to teach my kids that, whatever it is. Yes, I know society tolerates it, and, and so I'm going to tolerate it. Just don't infect my little holy bubble over here with it. There are many practices and standards and things that Scripture condemns while society tolerates. But we can sit back safely and say, what? As for me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord and we're good with that. So in that way, does the church tolerate an unholiness? Uh, It's a hard question, uh, you know. Can I take comfort in my private holiness here? I've got my bubble. I'm good, you got yours. Now, I'm often torn on what to address from the pulpit. Should I just stick to exegesis? I mean, this is what I'm trained in, this is what I'm gifted in. Should I just teach the word, make application, let you make the specific application in your life? You go out the door, uh, trust that, that, that when the Lord moves in your heart, you will either act, you will protest, you will vote, you will not act, you will do what, what the Lord does as he reveals his will to you. Or it, does it need to be prophetic? Does it need to be some great message of change? I, you look back at the Revolutionary War, and, and much of the movement of change in the country came from the pulpits. Because the ministers would stand up and say, this is tyranny and it's coming from the king. And they preached that message on a regular basis. And that got into the population. So how do we address things in scripture that are sin, but yet they are accepted and even sometimes legislated within society? So that society says, that well, this is the law. And we look at scripture and go, golly, Neds. Scripture says it's wrong. But we live in a society that says it's right. Okay? Let's make an easy application, okay? The low-hanging fruit. We won't go too 
deep. We don't have time, or this is just kind of a tangential thing. Uh, it's easy. Hebrew, Greek, life dues go the language, makes it clear that the killing of innocents is wrong. Okay, it's wrong in Scripture all the way through. So that means that the killing of innocents, those who have done nothing to you, is wrong. That's murder. That's abortion. Abortion is wrong. But yet we live in a society where it says it's legal. So how do we balance these two things? I mean, this has been a moral dilemma for the church since 73. I mean, how do we dwell in a world that says this is okay, it has been, it's legal, but the scripture says no, it's not. It's wrong. That's a bind that the church is in. How do we deal with it? Some days we deal with it well, some days we don't. Scripture in our experience as believers makes it clear that the ungodly can be anywhere from apathetic to uncomfortable to all-out hate-filled when it comes to an experience of the holy. When we go out and attempt to live our lives and get out of our Christian bubble and say, I'm going to demonstrate holiness, there's a lot of different responses that we can face. Sometimes the world wants the voice of the holy, the practices of the holy. They want it to be removed from the mainstream of society. And sometimes in certain cultures, even imprisoned, if we're going to go out and live holy lives. And sometimes even when the voices of holiness are the majority, the minority seems to get the upper hand and scream louder and say, well, you can't inflict that upon us, even though... Yes, you believe that's holy and that's righteous and it's just and and our justification is here from scripture, but we can face difficulty. Perhaps the ungodly feel the trauma of the holiness and they're reacting in the only way that they know, to squelch holiness, to squelch it. Well, one of the questions I have is when does the church feel the trauma of ungodliness? And what do we do about it? Do we get out and we fight it? Do we live examples of our own lives I, I don't really don't have an answer for you this is one of those things you've got to go and make application because <laughs> what does God call you to do if he calls you to go out and make us think about holiness then go make us think about it and live it and live it then you go well Rand, I, I'm not sure I want to do that because you know where, where's the balance between going out and living it and being so hated by the world that you're just no good about it anymore well scripture's pretty clear And Jesus makes it clear, they already hate us. The world hates us because they hated whom? Jesus. Ah. So if I'm going to be hated, then I'm going to be hated for what? For really doing what I'm supposed to. If if I'm hated for living a, a halfway holy life, what's that speak of? That's just, that's weak. Okay, If I'm going to be hated by the world, then I'm going to be hated for living the way that God wants me to live. Will it be perfect? Of course it won't be perfect. But they will hate us when we demonstrate the holy. Look, look at it's just a couple places in the Middle East. Look at Syria and, and, and Iraq. Christians are being killed in these places. They're being driven out of their homes, sometimes with only what they can carry. Sometimes they're just being outright killed by the latest iteration of some of the radicals who hate Holiness, okay? ISIS. I, I've forgotten what ISIS stands for, but that's the, uh, the initials. The ungodly cannot be tolerated within their midst. Now, as part of their doctrine, and this is, this is uh, Islamic doctrine, and remember that as part of their doctrine, everything that comes later in the Quran 
carries more authority and supersedes what comes earlier. Okay? So I just, I just say that. And that is their doctrine. That's how they structure it. Everything in Scripture carries the same authority for us. But the things that are written later in the Quran carry more authority if they contradict something that comes earlier. So if you see it in the end, it carries more weight than the beginning. Well, according to their doctrine, and it clearly states that Muslims have the freedom to tax, forcibly convert, or kill anybody who's not a Muslim, according to the doctrine. Okay? They can go about and lie about their own religion to non-Muslims if it serves the purpose of furthering Islam. Why do, they, why do we see this in Scripture? Now, don't say the application of believers, because we are imperfect, and we've got our own faults in the way that we live the things out. But when we see in Scripture... There are certain ways that we're supposed to, to act. And, and I can't kill you or convert you. Only God can convert you. My job is to deliver the message of Christ and let the Holy Spirit work in your life. The same as you, anybody that you come in contact with. Okay? Can you tax somebody if they don't convert? That's not a bad idea, but uh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't find it in Scripture, so we can't do it. They will hate us for being Christians. Let's make sure they really have something to sink their teeth of hate into. I don't want them to spend all their energy hating me for half an effort. They're going to hate me. I want to give them something to hate for. All right, back to the New Testament. Back to the New Testament. Remember the group of Pharisees that Jesus is addressing. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Pharisees, and they were a group who originally started in a great way, they wanted to bring the Jewish nation back to a pure religion because it had become synchronistic. It was in getting hooked up with other religions and it was being diluted. So the Pharisees started to live holy lives and they became the holy of the holiest. And that was good until it went to their heads. And then they began proud. Then they became full of themselves and their own holiness and they wanted everybody else to live those lives but their lives really were only external holiness look at Matthew 23 with me Jesus makes this great comparison in several ways here in Matthew 23 of the Pharisees and and how they live and I don't think it was really appreciated as much as it is today. Now, if you go to Denny's, or uh, I just think of, this is what I associate with, a diner, where if you want a cup of coffee, you get those big, white, thick mugs, okay? And, and you know, you get them, and they bring them to your table, and they've been washed, and they're pristine, and they look very good. What would happen, and Jesus says here, let me think, Matthew uh, 23, verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. What if the cup came to you, and and it's it's sitting across the table, you can only see the outside, and it looks white and pristine, and you grab it and look at it, and there's four days of coffee stain on the inside. Okay? Now, how enticing is that? Just imagine if there were dregs of the last guy's coffee in the bottom there or grounds or something. That's the example that he gives here. That's outside. It looks great, but inside it's full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may become clean too. You rub all you want on the outside, 
doesn't change the heart. Jesus says you must change the heart. Once the heart is changed, then the outside can change. I mean, I can take off these clothes and put on clean clothes, and I can take a bath, and I can smell good, but my heart still might be foul. Not until the heart is changed will the exterior change. So here you have a group who viewed themselves, and everybody else viewed them as the best. Even Paul, remember Paul says, you know, I came to being a Pharisee, I was the best at it. But once he came to Christ, he counted everything that had gone before that as done. Lost for Christ. With the appearance of Jesus, any curve of righteousness was gone. Here is the standard of holiness. Here is the standard of righteousness, and it is demonstrated in Jesus Christ. It's no longer measured by how I look next to the person that I'm sitting next to. How you did on the test. Okay? If you, you know, all I got to do is be better than you. No, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't matter anymore. Jesus set the standard. The Father and I are this way, therefore you should be this way. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit so that you can be this way. Let's go Luke 18. We've looked at this guy several times when we talk about holiness. He's the rich young ruler. Now God's curve, the curve is not part of God's judgment. For if God were to judge holiness on the curve, he would have to compromise his own holiness. He would have to say, well, I know this is the level, but I'm going to curve it and I'm going to let you in based upon the best that you can do. He just doesn't do that. Okay? That would be a compromise of his own holiness. He doesn't lower his standards to accommodate us. He remains altogether holy, altogether righteous, altogether just. So how can an unjust person survive in the presence of God? Luke 18, verse 18. And a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's basically a paraphrase out of Psalm 14, where he says, no one is good, not even one. So he doesn't understand the word good originally. He's grading himself and Jesus on the curve. He thinks he's a good teacher because he's better than he is. So he wants to know, how can I inherit eternal life? So Jesus asked him the question. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. These come from the second half of the Ten Commandments. Okay, they, res- they involve interaction between one another here and not between us and the Lord. And he says, all these I've kept from my youth. So here you have the perfect of the perfect, Jesus. And here you have a guy who has been perfect, apparently, according to his standard, all of his life. And he wants to know, how am I going to get to heaven? And, and he says, all these things I have kept from my youth. All of them. And Jesus, what? Jesus has to give him, the, if you just do one more thing, you'll be perfect? Is that what Jesus is saying? No. He says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, you shall have treasure in heaven Come and follow me. 
the guy was said, how do I get perfect on the outside so I can get to heaven? And Jesus says, you get on the inside. You clean the inside of the cup first, then you will change the outside. You can't measure goodness on the curve. God says we do this. Well, I do this. And we all know people who do good work. We all know people who are nice. Nicer than believers, okay? There are plenty of non-believers out there who are nicer than me. That does not get them in the presence of the Lord. That does not get them any status before the Lord. So if he sells everything, will he go to heaven? If he changes his heart. If Christ changes his heart, then he will. So what does this mean? We've had a lot of things. The world hates what is holy. And frankly, sometimes I hate what is holy because it makes me look bad. It makes me look bad. I realize that I fall short. I realize how imperfect I am. When I come across somebody who does it right, when I've been doing it wrong, whose life is purer than mine, part of me, and this is the sinful nature, part of me looks in envy, looks, looks in, in, in like, oh, man, you know, who are they to live that way? It's, uh, it's just human nature. But yet I should be looking at it and going, that's how I want my life to be. That, I want my life to be stronger in that area. I want to be pure in that area. I want my thought life to be this way. I want the words that come from my mouth to be this way. I want my actions to be this way. We all need people like that in our lives, people that we want to strive after because their lives are holier, not that we want to pick them apart for being holy, but I want to be like them. When we come face to face with holy, we are face to face with our own unrighteousness, our own failings. I can change or I can rebel and be angry. There will be no change in our lives unless we get on our knees before the Lord. The world will hate us for being holy. Make sure they have something to really hate us for. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we cannot do this. But you know that. Jesus left, promised the Comforter would come. He is the one who enables us, the one who gives us the strength, the one that makes it possible for our lives to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But there is this will within us that remains. These things that we cling to, that hold us back from really selling out to holiness, really devoting our lives to it, really following your word. Sometimes it's just fear, Lord. What will the world say? How will this look so different from the world? How can I do this? The world hates us if we're going to live anything like Christ. If we're going to name the name of Christ, the world will hate us. Lord, we need to live and rest in that. Because you love us and nothing can take us from your hand. You provide for us what we will need. Yes, we'll face dangers. Yes, things will come into our lives that will be awful when we seek to live the things of Christ. But you will never depart from us. You will never leave us or forsake us. 
You will provide for us those things that we need when we need them. Show us this week, Lord. Because we will all come face to face with a decision sometime this week. Will I live holy or will I punt? Will I demonstrate the things of Christ or will I hold back? Will I boldly live out what I know to be true? Will I be hesitant? Lord, might this week we be demonstrators of the things of Christ and the holiness of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.